0: Gracias. All right, friends and brethren, good morning. So good to have this opportunity to be with you. Uh, We're so glad to have this chance to come together to study. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10. We are going to be reading from Luke chapter 10, and then hopefully we're going to be able to make it uh, to John chapter 10 at the very end. Uh, this, is, this is my last class with you guys, so uh, I'll start off by saying thank you. I've really enjoyed the study. I uh, ho- hope you guys have as well, um, but you've had great feedback. You've had great comments. Uh, it's been a very enjoyable study to me. I'll be turning it over to Brother John Grimmett. Uh, he's going to be picking up next week, continuing on with the study of the Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, he emailed out his, his listing, his schedule for scriptures and for study. Um, if you did not get that email, we've got a couple of paper copies in the back, And of course, we're always happy to make more of those. But if you did not get the email, uh, back on that AV ledge, there there is a copy of that schedule. Anything that we need to make mention of or announce before we go to God in prayer? Okay, I I don't see anything. Uh, If if you would, let's bow together and we'll go to God in prayer before we start our study. God, you are great, you are awesome, you are mighty. Father, we humbly come before you this morning, thanking you for the opportunity to address you as our Father, to have this beautiful relationship, a relationship that you chose us, not because we were worthy, but despite of our unworthiness. Father, you put a plan in place from before the very creation of the world to save us from our sins and to bring us into this relationship with you. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the beauties of your creation that we see all around us. Father, we are humbled and we are in awe when we look outside and we see all the things. All the things that you made for us, Father. We thank you for that. Father, we are so thankful for this chance that we have together today. To be with brothers and sisters of Christ. To come into this place. To joyfully gather together and to study. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for these inspired scriptures that can guide us, that can lead us in a world that is full of uncertainty, in a world where so many are trying to pull us away and trying to show us things that are not according to your truth, we are so glad that we have the truth. We pray that you would be with us and guide us as we study from your scriptures today and as we seek to learn from your Son, from the Master Teacher, and from our Savior. God, be with us. Be with those that are not here. We ask that you would bring them back to us safely. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. I uh, want to start off, and uh, as, as with most things, these timelines look really, really great on my computer screen, uh, and then you get them up here, and they, they're, they're pretty tiny, but this is, this is just a big timeline. This is a big timeline of the life and ministry of, of Jesus, and it uses Luke as a template for that, and so there's a lot of different things going on here. Uh, believe it or not, it's actually fairly hard to find a good, concise timeline, uh, specifically thinking about the ministry of Christ. But what I want to get across, and, and you guys know I like to do this. I like to set the context. That, that's what helps me study. We are, are in Luke chapter 10. We are not even halfway through the book of Luke. But if you think about where we are in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, we are all the way over here. We are all the way over here. So you think about all the things that have happened. We studied in the very beginning about his birth. We studied in John about that early Judean ministry. We studied a lot about John the Baptist. And then we spent a bulk of our time right here. This is that Galilean ministry. And so we spent, you know, we said it could be about as long as two years. Two years right here in this Galilean ministry and all the different things that happened. But then we transitioned about two weeks ago. And so now we had this period of transition where he was going from Galilee. And he came to Jerusalem for the feasts. And then he comes. And now he's just kind of, he's around Judea. So some people call this the later Judean ministry or the Perian ministry, but we are right here. We are, we are five, six months away from the crucifixion of Christ. So we, we are half of the way through Luke's gospel, but we are like 98.5% of the way through Jesus Christ's life. And so that, that should hopefully set the stage for how much time we have covered, but it's also, you can see that this is all building. This is all building to these crucial final days. And what I hope you're seeing in some of these chapters is some of the wording and the messaging of Jesus that there is now an urgency. There is an urgency as he is trying to communicate to his disciples, to his apostles, to to those that are not listening. Listen, the, the time is coming. I am not going to be here much longer. You need to strengthen your faith. You need to understand these things. You need to repent. And so I just want you to notice uh, some, of that, some of that urgency. Uh, we'll do just a, just a brief uh, recap. I really appreciate Bill filling in for me uh, last week. And he covered Luke uh, chapters 10, 11, uh, and, and a, little bit, a little bit into 12. One thing that, that Sister Diana mentioned to me, she wanted me to go back to John chapter 7. Uh, we had a discussion a little bit about the, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And she brought out some good verses in John chapter 7. In verse 37, and if you remember, this is uh, this is in the context, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. This is a little bit previously, but Jesus having these discussions with these religious leaders talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So I appreciate Sister Diana uh, referencing that verse. That's certainly a good one to keep in mind. Um, but I, I wanted to, as, as we kind of come, come back to our Luke text, uh, we think about some of the things that we covered last week, just by, by way of a brief recap. As I was going through there, and I was thinking about some of the things that Bill was saying, and I was reading through there, w- one theme jumped out at me. And this is something that we've discussed before, but... It really seems like Jesus is trying to get them to change their focus. They're they're focused on the wrong things. Or he's trying to to warn them and say, hey, listen, be careful what you're focused on. Uh, Especially Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I almost see three groups there that are warned about their focus. You know, you have the 70. The 70 that come back and they're so excited about the success that they had in this limited commission, going out and teaching. But it seems like they might be a little bit more focused on their abilities than what actually happens. And so Jesus says in in chapter 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Then we have this account of the lawyer. And he's so concerned with justifying himself that he's moving beyond the principle that Jesus is trying to teach him about who his neighbor is and what his responsibilities are to the neighbor. And then we kind of hone in a very personal example. We have Mary and Martha. And Martha is more focused on these physical tasks, these physical acts of readying the house and serving and not thinking about the spiritual things. Then even when we go to Luke chapter 11, you know, I, I can view Luke chapter 11 much through that same lens. As these disciples come and they say, teach us how to pray the way that John prayed. And Jesus, yes, gives them some words. He gives them some example, but then he goes on and Bill did a great job, verses 5 through 8 and verses 9 through 13. These two areas that really highlight how we pray, what we should be praying for, the manner in which we should be praying for, the persistence, the dedication, and the attitude that we should have as we're praying to our Father. Then verses fourteen through through twenty-six. This is just in my mind. There's this perfect picture of the Jewish nation. You know, again, you have this uh, this uh, scenario where Jesus is casting out a demon. And the people are at a loss for how to respond to it. So they go back, they fall back on the same old thing. Well, you're casting out demons by demons. And there's this illustration there in verses 24 through 26 about an unclean spirit going out of a man. This man has a wonderful opportunity to be freed from the bondage of this unclean spirit. But he doesn't take that opportunity. The unclean spirit comes back and he's in a worse state than what he was before. And what an accurate picture of the Jewish people. The Jewish people had this incredible opportunity to learn from the master. They had this incredible opportunity to break free from the bondage of the old law and the bondage of sin. But they couldn't take advantage of that opportunity. They were focused on the wrong things. And then verses 37 through 54, really honing in. Just these woe after woe after woe on the Pharisees and the lawyers. And what are they focused on? You know, it seems they're, they're focused on these ceremonial cleansings. They're focused on the best seats in the synagogue. They're focused on building the tombs of the prophets. Listen to this language. You, you built the tombs of the prophets, but you didn't listen to them. How, how empty and how vain their words were, but they were so focused on the outside appearance. Just the wrong focus. And that brings us to Luke chapter 12. Bill did a good job of kind of setting the scene for us as we come to Luke chapter 12. Now we have all these crowds. So we've left... What was a, probably a smaller gathering, I think I think they were, he was actually dining with some Pharisees and some scribes and lawyers, he's left maybe a smaller, more intimate gathering, and now he's out. And it talks about these multitudes of crowds. What I really see in Luke chapter 12, there's just a ton of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. And while it may seem like he's repeating himself, do we have the same audience? How, how do we know that it's not the same audience? Huh? The timeline, the product. Yeah, the timeline. Where, where did the Sermon on the Mount happen? Yeah, the Sermon, on the, Mount, the Sermon on the Mount was previous. The Sermon on the Mount was during that Galilean period of ministry. Now we're down closer to Jerusalem. There certainly could have been some overlap, and there's nothing wrong with overlap and mentioning some of the same things. But as you read through these chapters in Luke, think back to our previous studies, the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of the things that he said during the Galilean ministry, he's going to be repeating again, but it's probably a different audience. Now he's coming down. He's in and around Jerusalem, probably talking to some, to some different people that didn't have the chance to hear before. But as you go throughout chapter 12, you see a lot of, of those parallels. And he hits a couple of different topics here. And We're not going to just get, get super deep into these, but some of these things, if you go to chapter 12, verses 4 down through 12, again, I'm still thinking about this lens of what is your focus? What are you so focused on? And he tells them in verse 4, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. And yes, I say to you, fear him. We have to shift our focus. Shift your focus away from persecution. Are you worried about persecution? Are you worried about losing your physical life? There is something that is far more important than your physical life. And he transitions that thought down into verses 8 through 12 to say, because of that, the most important thing you can do is to confess Christ before men. Note that theme of urgency. Listen, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to make a choice between confessing Christ, remaining loyal to him, and facing persecution. And you may lose your physical life. But he's telling them, don't focus on that. That is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's more important for you, verse 8... Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, also will confess before the angels of God. That's what you need to be focused on. That's more important. You go to the next section, verses 13 through 21. You have this individual that cries out to him and says, Brother, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What's he focused on? You, You have here the master teacher who has just talked to you about what the most important thing is. And this guy takes the opportunity to say, hey, can I get some money? Hey, teacher, while you're here, my brother owes me five bucks. Can you get him to pay me that five bucks? I've been trying to get it from him for months. That's what this guy is focused on. And he uses this as an opportunity to say, listen, verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. Get your focus off of the physical, off of earthly wealth. Beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Reminds me a lot of Matthew chapter 6. As you go on throughout the rest of this, he tells in this parable. This parable of the rich fool, the guy that had so much going on. He was going to build all these extra barns. He was going to this extensive building project because he just had everything in this life that the world could offer. But guess what? Verse 20, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So shift your focus, verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Shift your focus towards God. Because we have no guarantees. Now that's not saying that we should never take any kind of earthly preparation. That's not saying that we should not be good stewards of what we've been blessed with. If you've got a bunch of crops, you shouldn't leave them just sitting out there. It's okay to go build a barn. But what is your attitude when you're doing this? Are you so focused on the blessings and the earthly wealth and the material accumulation that you have lost sight of being rich toward God, of giving in abundance with what you have toward God, giving your life to God? He transitions then, and I think he's really continuing the same thought as you go into verses 22 down through verse 34. Maybe not somebody who has a ton of abundance. So now we're kind of looking at the flip side of it. But even those that don't have a lot of earthly possessions can fall into the same trap. When we we worry constantly about the daily provisions, the daily things. So now you've got kind of both sides of the coin. You've got the super, super rich who's got everything this world could offer and is spending all of his time building more barns to hold it. Now I feel like you're looking at the other side of the coin. You're looking at the regular person. But the regular person who is so focused on the the day-to-day. He says in verse 22, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. should remind you a lot of what we discussed in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of those same ideas, and really kind of highlighting some of those same pictures. He says, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So two two considerations there. First of all, we look at God's creation around us and how he is so wonderfully provided. There, There is no animal that does not in its natural environment have everything it needs. Food, shelter, everything. God has so perfectly designed his creation that they have everything they need to live and to flourish. And he says, if you... Being the crown jewel of creation can see that in the least of creatures. Don't you think that God would provide for you? Go back to what we studied last week when he's talking about the attitude with which you should take when you're asking God. So listen, even you wicked people, if your son comes and asks you for for a little bit of bread, you're not going to give him a scorpion, you're not going to give him a stone. How much more would the righteous father who loves you beyond anything bless you? So think about that first of all, but then also... Even if you do worry about it, what's that going to do? It's going to do a whole lot of nothing. If you sit there all day and you worry, 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 you've accomplished nothing except sit there for a day and worry, worry, worry. It's not saying that it's easy, but he's giving them these practical considerations. Whether you are wealthy, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are normal, If your focus is not where it needs to be, you are going to be in trouble. And you have to shift your focus away. And he points them to exactly what they need to shift their focus to in verse 31. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Not seek the kingdom of God and you will have prosperity beyond your wildest dreams. That's not what we're talking about. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what he's trying to tell them. Shift your focus to focusing on the kingdom. Seek the kingdom first. All these other things are going to take care of themselves. Because you are going to have the most important thing of all. He, he then goes on, and, and I think what he does next is he's, he's highlighted a couple of areas where people don't have their focus right. You know, you're either focused on persecution, you're focused on earthly wealth, you're focused on these daily needs. And now he's really transitioning, I think, verses 35 through 48 to saying, listen, get ready. What you should absolutely be focused on is getting ready for the kingdom. And he gives a parable here uh, of this faithful servant. This servant that is ready no matter what time, day or night, the master is going to come. He says there in verse 36, You yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. You think about this wedding feast. You never knew when the master was going to come back. Was it a short wedding? Was it a long wedding? Was he coming back at 10 o'clock, midnight, 2 a.m.? The wicked and the lazy lazy servant, 45, 10 o'clock, he was heading to bed. All right, we're, we're out. But the faithful servant, the faithful servant is the one that made preparation. Verse 35 talks about let your waist be girded and let your lamps be burning. He was ready to serve. He was ready to stay up all night if he needed to be. He didn't know when that master was going to come back, but whenever the master came back, he was going to be ready. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. I, I get the impression that he is sitting there right by the door, knowing that the master could come back at any point in time. And as soon as that knock happens, boom, he's ready. Door's open, his waist is girded, he's ready to serve, he's ready to prepare, he's got the lamps all lit. Everything is ready because he has made preparation and he has this, this expectation that the master is going to come back. And that individual, verse 37, blessed. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And it says in verse 38, if he should come in the second watch or the third watch and find them, blessed are they. No matter when he comes back, if you have that earnest expectation, you're going to be blessed. But the flip side of that is that there are those that are not going to be ready. There are those that are not going to be ready. And it says in verse 39, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. There's that admonition there to be ready. And he flips it over a little bit. And he talks about in the following verses, is verses 42 and following, he talks about a faithful steward that is going to be blessed. But then he kind of contrasts that in verse 45 and following with this wicked and this lazy servant that beats the others, that eats and drinks. And the punishment that is going to come upon him, I, I just see. I just see an urgency here. He's really honing his message, trying to get these individuals to be ready for the kingdom, to be desiring, earnestly desiring the kingdom. Uh, and I think that's highlighted a little bit in these next couple of verses, forty-nine through fifty-three. They are going to have to make a choice, similar to what we discussed in the beginning of chapter twelve. He says, uh, he says there in this is verses forty-nine. Uh, down through about verse 53 there. He, he's saying that, listen, my time is coming. My time is coming. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And this is not going to be one that is going to bring a, a lot of peace and joy and rejoicing initially. There's going to be some division. You are going to have to make a choice. He talks about this household where there's going to be five individuals, and it's going to be three against two. And this is within the same household. These are fathers uh, and daughters against mothers, mother-in-laws against daughter-in-laws. And I think what he's highlighting to them is that you have to be ready to make a choice. And you have to know what the stakes are. And there are going to be some situations where it it might split a family. But you have to be ready to to make that choice. And and again, just continuing on, that same theme of urgency. I, I just keep seeing it over and over in these verses. Verse 54 down through verse 59. Uh, verse 54, he, he's used some of this similar, uh, similar wording before, but he says, Listen, you know how to look around you in nature and see what's coming. Remember how before he talked to the Pharisees and he said, uh, The whole you know, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning. You can look at these natural occurrences and you can predict with certainty what's going to be coming. Same thing here. He says, you can see a cloud coming out of the west, and you know that a shower is coming. You can see some of these things coming in nature. He said, but, he says, you can't see what's coming here. And and I think he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about his crucifixion, his leaving them, and what's going to be coming. And there's this admonition, verses 57 through 59. He tells this story about a man and his adversary. They're going to the magistrate. And he's encouraging you, listen, while you're on the way there, make peace with your adversary. Because when you go to the magistrate, it's out of your hands, right? When you go to an arbiter, when you go to a judge, you are no longer going to have an opportunity to make peace with your adversary. Now it's out of your hands. It's out of your control. And he's telling them there is going to come a time when you are not going to be able to to make peace anymore. You are not going to be able to come to the kingdom. He's going to highlight that uh, time and time again. He's going to talk about it more in, in Luke chapter 13. But I, I, just, I just see that, that theme of urgency there. Well, let me stop for just a second. I, any thoughts on, on Luke chapter 12, uh, some of the things that we've, that we've discussed here? Or, or even going back, I know we, kind of, we moved quickly through 10 and 11 last week. Any thoughts on Luke 10, 11, and 12 before we move on? Okay. Well, let's go on to chapter 13. It's really just a continuous thought. Um, I I think I see a lot of those same things. I'm just, I'm I'm keyed in on that that idea of of the urgency. Uh, But Jesus, in the beginning of Luke chapter 13, he has this situation where some individuals come and they tell him in verse 1 that uh, Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure what happened here. Um, what it immediately made me think of was going all the way back to the time of the Maccabees, and you think about Antiochus Epiphanes, who had desecrated their altar. And what did what did he do to their altar? Do you guys remember? Yeah. So when he came in, he he offered he offered pigs, which were unclean. Offered pigs and desecrated their altar. I don't know if this was something similar, but it was something that had a big impact on them. It seems that these Galileans, so Jesus' countrymen, these Galileans were killed, and not only were they killed by, by Rome, by the ruling authority at this time, they were killed, and then their blood was mixed with the sacrifices, something that would have probably been, been pretty shocking, and, and I think pretty sobering, too, to these people. It, it may be that they are trying to provoke him to speak out against the Roman government. Again, we've talked a lot about how the vast majority of people at this point in time did not have an understanding of what the kingdom constituted that Jesus was trying to tell them about. A lot of them were still thinking about this physical kingdom. Is this going to be another one of the Maccabees that's going to rise up and lead us to military victory and set up this new kingdom? And so maybe they were hoping to tell him about this this shocking, sobering thing in hopes that he would step up and say, you know what, we're not going to stand for that. When my kingdom comes, we're going to you know, fill in the blank. Perhaps, perhaps that's what it is. But whatever it was, he uses this, uh, I think, really sobering event to be, to be a teaching lesson. And he uses another situation. It sounds like a tower fell on individuals, 18 individuals in Siloam. A tower fell and killed them. And I think what he does is he turns these two situations where individuals lost their lives to remind them that while you have an opportunity, you need to use the life that you have to come to the kingdom. Again, I'm just so stuck on this idea of the the urgency where he's reminding them time and time again, you have an opportunity. Do not squander it. There are individuals that no longer have the opportunity. The individuals that, that were killed, that Pilate mingled their blood, they no longer have this opportunity. The, in, the individuals that the tower fell on them, they no longer have that opportunity. And it's not because they were more wicked or they were, they were worse than somebody else. They no longer have this opportunity, but you do. And he tells them this parable about a fig tree. I think it's interesting that when you think about this parable the fig tree, where uh, the, the, the master of the vineyard comes, he doesn't find, he doesn't find any fruit on the fig tree. Does anybody notice how long did he come looking to find fruit on that fig tree? Three years. three years. It's interesting to me. You think about the ministry of Christ being about three years long. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily, uh, I don't think that's just um, a coincidence. But you have somebody who came for three years in a row looking to find a tree that was bearing fruit and found none. Okay. But there's going to be one more opportunity. And he says, he says, cut it down. Why is this thing using up the ground? But they're patient. Sir, let it alone this year also. One more year. One more opportunity. Let me dig around it. Let me, let me fertilize it and give it one more chance to bear fruit. You think about this whole idea of the timeline, of where we're at. We're at the very, very end. Jesus has been coming to this fig tree. He's been coming to these individuals for three years now, hoping to find folks that would bear fruit. And he hasn't found it yet, but they have one more chance. They've got one more short period of time to bear fruit. And he's going to dig, he's going to fertilize, he's going to teach, he's going to remind, and he's going to hope that they can bear fruits, bear fruits worthy of repentance. As we go into these next couple of verses Uh, Verses 10 through 17. And please, I'll remind you, if you have a comment, if you have something you want to add, uh, Jason's got the microphone back there. Uh, You're welcome. Please throw up a hand. um, And I'd love to have you add to the class. As we go on to these next couple of verses, verses 10 through 17, uh, Jesus is teaching now in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And we have another situation where he's healing a woman. He heals somebody. This time, uh, it seems like it's unprovoked. The individual does not come to him. Jesus just sees somebody And he sees somebody who is bowed over, bowed over, and he has compassion upon this woman and heals her. Well, the master of the synagogue is just just furious with this. And he says, listen, we don't do this on the Sabbath. If you want to be healed, you come, you know, you come Sunday through Sunday through Friday. Those are the healing days. That's when we do work. (laughs) Again, just, you know, where, where, where where's their focus? What are they, what are they thinking about? And, And as Jesus has done so many times before, he just points out the utter hypocrisy Of thinking this. And I love the words that he uses down in verse 15 and 16. He says, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound. I love this part. Think of it. You just imagine him saying like, guys, just, just think about this. Think about this. This woman has been bound by Satan. She has been bowed over. She has been in in this terrible situation. He says, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And and of course, when when they say these things, they've got no response to this. It says all his adversaries in verse 17 were put to shame and the multitudes rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I, I love the viewpoint that he expresses here. As he is healing this this woman, he he views it as a loosening, as a freeing. And and what a beautiful picture that is for these people. That is what Jesus came to do. He came to loose them from the bonds that they were under. He came to free them from the restrictions that they were under. In in lots of different ways. You think about Romans chapter 6, how it talks about the slavery of sin that we are in, the bondage of sin that we are in. And how we have have come, when we come through Christ, we can be freed from the bondage that is under sin. Satan would tell you that sin is freedom. Sin is no rules. Sin is this opportunity to cast out the Bible and cast out all these people that try to tell you what to do. No, you get to make the rules. But that's not the reality. The reality that sin sin is bondage. Sin keeps us under bondage. And it's through Christ that we can be freed from that bondage. He also came to loose them. From the bondage of the old covenant. This old covenant that could not fully take away sins. And I think he's also talking about here, he's coming to loose them from the bondage of all of these man-made traditions that the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers keep putting on them. It's just tradition after tradition, ceremony after ceremony after ceremony, and and they can never keep it right. Because that's how the Pharisees stay in power. You can never do everything correctly, because they've just got to come up with new traditions. And Jesus is coming and saying, listen, I'm here to loosen you from those bonds. I'm here to free you from those bonds. And what a beautiful picture it is to see a woman who is under affliction for 18 years finally being loosed from that. And that's the picture that he's trying to get across to all of them. You too can experience that same thing. You can come and you can drink from those living waters that are never going to run out. You can have food that is going to satisfy you forever that you don't have to pay a price for fulfilling some of those same images that we've been looking at from Isaiah of this one who is going to come and he's going to come to the poor he's going to come to the brokenhearted he's going to come to those that have no hope whatsoever in this life and he is going to free them and it's a freedom that can only come through that savior that messiah what a beautiful beautiful picture there beautiful picture there let's go on and look at some of these other things. Verses 18 through 30. Now, let me go ahead and mention that in between verses 21 and 22, there is is a gap of time. And I'm going to go ahead and just cover uh, the the rest of this section. I'm going to go ahead and cover the rest of Luke chapter 13 because it's fairly short. But there is a gap of time between verses 21 and 22, and that is the Feast of Dedication that's over in John 10. And so we're going to go to John 10 afterwards, uh, but just note that, that there is this gap of time. But I actually see this, this wonderful connection between what's talked about in verses 18 through 21 and then what's talked about in verses 22 and following. There, there, is this, there is this very interesting paradox that is presented to us about the kingdom of God. In one way, think again about this beautiful image of the woman who has had her bonds loosed. That provides hope. That message of hope has the ability to spread like wildfire. And you have two examples, the parable of the mustard seed, which we've seen plenty of times before, and also the parable of the leaven. Two instances, verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed. Verse 20, what shall I liken the kingdom of God to? It is like leaven. This message of hope to the poor, the brokenhearted, and the downtrodden has the ability to spread like wildflower, wildfire, to start very, very, very small. But then to grow into something, you think about this this mustard seed, tiny, 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 but now it can grow into this huge tree that has the ability to support all kinds of individuals. Think about our own lives. We can know of individuals, one individual that has this beautiful ripple effect throughout their life of individuals they have influenced, individuals they have impacted, individuals they have brought to Christ. And then not only their own life. But now generation after generation after generation can come to know the hope that is through the Savior because of one person's choice. But on the other side of that, when we come to verses 22 and following, we realize that even though this message of hope has the ability to spread, not many people are going to come to it. In verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so there are some sobering words. There is tremendous opportunity. But the reality is that despite the opportunity, despite the message of hope that is provided, there are individuals that are going to choose to stay in that bondage. They are not going to be be willing to enter in to that narrow gate. And here I think he is talking specifically about some of the members of his own country, some of the Jews. As you go down a little bit, And you look at, let's see, go down to verse 24. I'm sorry, uh, go down a little bit to verse 28. Uh, Let's back up to verse 27. He will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves are thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they will sit down in the kingdom of God. There is going to be this tremendous opportunity for individuals to come and to enter, but there are going to be lots of individuals that reject it. They're going to reject it and they they're not going to come. Even individuals that are the Gentiles. That, that's what I think he's talking about. That's, that's some uh, some similar, uh, some similar uh, language there, thinking about those that are coming from the East. I, I believe it's with the uh, maybe it's the Centurion. I think when he's talking to the, to the centurion, when he heals the centurion servant, and he says, uh, that, that, just, that just popped in my head, you can double check me on that. When he is talking to the centurion servant, he says, not so great a faith have I seen even in Israel, but there are going to be those that come from the north and the south and the east and the west to enter into the kingdom of God. And I think that's just an admonition to them there, that listen, you guys are squandering this opportunity. You have got a chance, and it's going to pass you by. Uh, let's just finish up th- this, this section right here before we go on and we conclude in John chapter 10. Uh, it, it seems in verses uh, 31 and following at that very point in time, some Pharisees try to warn Jesus about this supposed attempt on his life by Herod. Uh, don't know if that was real or if they were really just trying to get him out of there. <laughs> if they saw the success that he was having in talking to the multitudes and they were trying to do anything they could to get him to stop teaching and to leave. Uh, but he tells them regardless of whether it was real or not, He said, listen, my time has not yet come. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. It cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. But I am going to come back. His time is running short, and he wishes there was more that he could do, more that he could do for Jerusalem. And it says there in verse 35, it says, see, your house has left you desolate. Assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what is verse 35 referring to? When are they going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Triumphal entry. Triumphal entry. In Matthew chapter 21, Hosanna. Hosanna. And so that's what he's referring to. And so this is how we know that this is after the period that we're about to look at in John chapter 10. Because in John chapter 10, he is back in Jerusalem. He's back there for the Feast of Dedication. Um, But he is saying, again, I think this all just fits into this context of the urgency. He's not going to be in Jerusalem anymore until he comes back in that triumphal entry. And he has that one week period before his crucifixion. Uh, Before we go to John 10, any thoughts, any thoughts on our studies in Luke? Uh, Any comments or anything that anybody wants to add? All right, go over then to John chapter 10. And guys, we have a chance to finish All the material that I'm supposed to cover. So, knock knock on wood. Alright, John chapter 10 and verse 22. It's the Feast of Dedication. Uh, Before I put it up there, what do we call the Feast of Dedication? What do we know the Feast of Dedication as? A little trivia for you. If you're an Adam Sandler fan, you should also know this. Oh, nobody? Hanukkah. Put on your yarmulke. Alright, so... The Feast of Dedication. This is December. Eight crazy nights. Uh, so this is the Feast of Dedication. This is in December. It tells us that in John chapter 10 and verse 22. So the Feast of Dedication, uh, this, this originated, we talked about this a couple of minutes ago. Uh, this was during the time of the Maccabees. So we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes coming in and desecrating the altar. Uh, John, Judas Maccabeus goes in 165. He retakes the altar. And this was where this feast of dedication came about. They had this eight-day celebration uh, where they were celebrating the rededicating of that altar, the retaking uh, back of their nation uh, from, from the Greeks, from Antiochus. Okay? Uh, so this is the time period that we're talking about where Jesus comes in. This is very similar. If you think about our studies from John, you go back two weeks ago, we kind of traced John really just kind of hits these feast days. So he hits these times that Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the feast and he has these interactions of teaching. They're all very, very similar. They're very similar. And we're going to see a lot of the same things. A lot of the same things that we discussed at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or in-gathering two weeks ago, He is just going to hammer them home with some of the same things. That was October. This is December. So just two months, he's going right back after them with some of these same things. So what I love is that he comes, uh, this, is, this is him, he's on Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico, and the Jews come to him in verse 24, and they say, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Man, can you imagine? If, I know he wouldn't, but just wanted to smack these guys upside the head. How could you ask me this? How could you just, hey, don't, don't beat around the bush. If you're, if you're the Messiah, could you just tell us? Like, guys, what have I been doing? What have I literally been doing? What did I do two months ago? What did I do two years ago? What have I been doing for the last three years? No excuse whatsoever. And that's how you know they're not, they're not truly interested. They are not truly seeking the Messiah. They're not truly seeking the Christ. They want to get him to say something. They want to get him to, to proclaim something that then they can take him or, or, or they, can, they can capture him for. And he just says, he says, listen, I told you, verse 25, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. I've told you and I've done it. No excuse to ask me that question. Ask better questions or don't ask questions at all. But he goes on and he tells them some of these same things that we've looked at before. In verse 27, he again talks about being the shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep. And that's in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. When he goes down to verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Think back a couple of chapters. When he talks about being from the father. Before Abraham was. I am. Some of those same things where he bears witness to his deity. Now this really gets them going. Just like like it has before. And so they get ready. uh, It says they get ready to stone him. (laughs) And his response in verse 32 is. Okay if you're going to stone me. Which of the good works that I've done are you going to stone me for? Is it for this healing? Is it for this miracle over here? Is it for casting out this demon? And, of course, they've got no answer for that. And they say, well, it's not because of your good works. It's because you claim to be the son of God. And as he always does, he goes back to the scriptures for them. And he goes back to Psalms. And he goes back, I believe that's Psalm eighty-two, 6. And he says, listen, the Psalms tells you that the word of God came to you. And because the word of God came to you, you also are sons of God. And so, if you should be sons of God, why are you stoning me for saying that I'm the son of God? And of course, they have no answer for that. As he uses their own scriptures to refute them the scriptures that they claim to know, the scriptures that they claim to cling to, he uses them against them to point out that their motivation is not in the right place. They are not seeking to stone him because he is the son of God. It's because he has come to upend their status, their power, and where they are. And they don't like that. So he points out to them what they are truly trying to do. And I love the challenge that he concludes with. This is verse 37. He says, if I do not do the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So even if you don't get there, Even if you can't get there in your minds, just open your eyes. Open your eyes and see the things that I do. Because as we talked about before, they are so divorced from reality at this point. They have stopped looking. They have stopped listening. They have stopped seeing what is directly in front of them, and they only see what they want to see. That's an individual that's an obstacle to them and their own power and their own status quo. And he tells them, he says, listen, (laughs) if I've done something wrong, he's like, point it out. I think he does a great job if you go back, uh, I, I think, about just a couple of chapters prior. Chapter 8 and verse 46. Remember, we had at the beginning of chapter 8, there's the woman caught in adultery. And he says, the one among you who has no sin, throw the first stone. And then he bookends that with, which one of you is going to convict me of sin? In 846. But if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? You go all the way. I'm going to jump to the end. You go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 and 23, when he's questioned by the high priest... He says, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Give it to me. But if I haven't, why do you strike me? Why don't you believe me? He has put the ball in their court. He has given them the evidence. He's given them the opportunity. And he's making them realize that if you're not going to take it, it's because you have chosen not to take it. Uh, of course, again, they try unsuccessfully to take him. And then he, he leaves this area and he goes back to the Jordan. Jordan. So he goes back to where he was uh, really in the very beginning. This is back where John the Baptist was, and individuals are now coming to him to hear him teach. So that is, uh, that's, that's the end of our class. I greatly appreciate I'll mention this again. I greatly appreciate all your time. I know we've covered, covered a ton, covered a lot, a lot of material, and I appreciate your patience. And, of course, I appreciate your good feedback and your questions and your comments. And uh, I'm excited for Brother John's class to continue on from here.